It's a pleasure to be here today, tonight. It's a pleasure to be here sober. And I got to thank my dear friend Bob and Lou. Where are you, Bob and Lou? For, for asking Lib and I to come up and share. Uh, this has just been wonderful. This has just been great to come up and uh, and be with my kind of people. And I appreciate every one of you being here. And I hadn't had a drink today, and 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 that's a miracle. But the real miracle in the program of Cox and Thomas is I hadn't wanted to have a drink. And, and that's what this program has done for me in my life. And I need to clear up a few things before I get started in my talk. And uh, when this beautiful young lady was, was sharing her story last night, and she was talking about this gorgeous man she met about ten years ago, that's me. <laughs> <clears throat> and for all you dirty old men sitting out there, I, I want to clarify this. That's my wife, not my daughter. <clears throat> I had a real, real fantastic drunk log to tell you all tonight, but my sponsor showed up, and I had to spend about a month with him this afternoon, and and, uh, and he keeps me honest, and I'm just glad he's here. My sponsor is here. i got a sponsor that knows everything about everything, and uh, and he gave me a sign one time, and he says, Now, Bob, I want you to take this, and I want you to put it somewhere where you can read it every day. And it was on my fifth birthday, I believe, and, and I did. And I took that sign and I, and I rolled it out and I got hung it in the kitchen. And that sign read, read something like this. It says, Dale Bob, thank you, but I don't believe I'll need your help today. Love God. There's <laughs> a lot of truth to that. It really is. There's a lot of truth tonight. i, I got to thank all the speakers that, 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 that shared this podium before me. Uh, Ted, Kay, and, uh, and my wife, Lib. And I'm sort of like Ted. I, I don't have uh, I don't have a fantastic drunk log. I, I didn't get to the problem of Alcoholics Anonymous from under a bridge. I didn't get to the problem of Alcoholics Anonymous from from prison. I, I didn't get to the problem of Alcoholics Anonymous because I lost a job. Uh, my I came to the problem of Alcoholics Anonymous because I I was under a bridge in my mind and I was in the gutter in my mind, and I became a useless, worthless human being as a direct result of alcoholism. I had a friend in this program who. He spent over half his life in prison. And he got to the fellowship of the program of Anonymous, and he became a real good friend of mine, and he shared with me one night. He said, you know, Bob, he said, I, I spent half my life in prison as a result of alcoholism, hurting people and beating up people and robbing and stealing people and feeling less than and not as good as. And he says, as a result of that, I spent half my life in prison. He said, but you know, he says, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I finally realized that you don't have to be locked up behind bars to be a prisoner. And I identified because, you see, I was a prisoner for 28 years. 28 years to the disease of alcoholism, and I never knew it. I never knew it. I grew up in Manning, South Carolina, me and Mom. And the reason I say me and Mom because Dad left Mom when I was just a little boy. And I can't remember back uh, exactly when the time was that I, I knew I was different or I felt different, but I believe it was about the time I was six or seven years old and I went to a Cub Scout meeting. And I can remember sitting in that meeting, and they were talking about all the things that the fathers and sons were going to do together. And I knew I didn't have a father, so I didn't belong. And I, I can remember coming up in that little, being raised in that little town, and I can remember having friends, and I can remember going to high school and grammar school. And, and, and I don't know whether I, I, I just had one of these things that I started this, these feelings on the inside of me that, that I knew I wanted to rebel. I was sort of like, you know, if you told me to stand up, I always wanted to sit down. If you told me to move to the right, I always want to move to the left. If you told me to shut up, I always wanted to talk. If you told me to talk, I always wanted to shut up. I just always went, a grain for some, went against the grain for some reason. I can remember when I was about 16 years of age, I just graduated from high school. Two friends of mine came by, and, and they said, Bob, let's ride down the lake and have a drink. You might just like it. We got down to that lake, and, and, and it's amazing. When Ted was sharing his story yesterday morning, the first thing he ever drank was champagne. That's the first thing I ever drank. And they opened that bottle up and they passed it back in the back seat and they said, Bob, have this. And I drank that champagne and I could just remember I loved the taste of it. I loved the smell of it. I loved everything about it. And I said, I believe I'll have another. And I drank another one. And, and that started me at age 16 until I got to you folks on that journey that we all get on. Disease of alcoholism. After I graduated from high school, I... Uh, I went to college, and I need to mention that I went to college. I went to college for seven years, and I need to tell you all that so you all won't think there's some dummy up here talking to you. <laughs> In fact, I'm not so sure the best three years of my life was when I was a freshman. 
And that tells you right there, I didn't go to college to get a degree. I went to college to have a good time, and I had a good time. I got married when I was in college, and the reason I got married when I was in college is because I got this girl in trouble, and that's what she did back then. And this girl came from an alcoholic home, and she was a nice lady, but she suffered the same disease that I did, but she wasn't a drinker. I stayed married to this lady for 20 years and two weeks. That marriage, from all outward appearance, you would think it was something like Norman Rockwell painted. The, uh, you know, Norman Rockwell has this fantastic ability to paint this, these pictures of, uh, of the American scene. And that marriage had all the looks of a successful, successful marriage. We had the house. We had the two kids. We had the two-car garage. We had the jobs. We looked good. And we were suffering from disease of alcoholism. Now, I never physically abused my wife or my family, but I emotionally and I spiritually and I mentally abused them. And I don't want to say that I spiritually abused them. Maybe I spiritually neglected them. And the reason I said that, because my daughter was 20 years old when she got to the fellowship program with Alcoholics Anonymous and she didn't even know the Lord's Prayer. So that tells you we didn't go to church a lot in that family. And I had gone to church when I was just a little boy because my mother tried to, tried to share her God with me. In that family, the typical day would be something like this. I'd say, honey, I'll be home about 5 o'clock this afternoon. You get the kids ready and we'll go out and eat tonight. And she'd say, well, that'd be great. We need to do something together. And what I was really saying was, you know, if I don't get too drunk this afternoon to get home at 5 o'clock, and if I do get home at 5 o'clock and I decide that we want to go out to eat, and I'll pick a restaurant that we go out to eat to eat at, and when I pick this restaurant, it'll have a bar in it, and then when we get off, I'll throw those kids in the back seat and that wife in the front seat, and I give them a quick lesson on drunk driving on this restaurant that we go into, and we'd sit in this restaurant and I'd drink all I wanted to drink, and then I tell those kids what to order, and I tell that wife what to order, because you see, I control the money. And then at 9 or 9 or 9.30, when I get through eating and drinking, and they get through whatever they're doing, I'd pile them back in the car, give them another lesson in drunk driving, and take them home, and I did what I did best, and that was pass out. And that would be, that would be a, 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 something that we would repeat day after day or week after week whenever I'd want to give my family any kind of time. Now, now when you drink alcohol like I did... Sooner or later, you begin to get into financial trouble. And the reason you get in financial trouble is because you get a lot of DUIs. And you wreck cars. And you have blackouts. And I can remember 1969 and a blackout in Greensboro, 19, Greensboro, North Carolina. I almost killed a 19-year-old kid. And I don't even remember it. But see, if you're a good alcoholic like me, your wife works hard and she gives you a check. And the reason she gives you a check is because, see, I'm smart and I control the money. And when she'd give me her check, I'd pay just the bills that I had to pay just to get by. Because, you see, I had other habits out there. And those habits included women, and those habits included gambling, and those habits included doing what Bob wanted to do. And, see, I had this thing in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we lived, that I could go to all these financial companies, and I could borrow, and I could borrow, and I could borrow. But you know what happens when you borrow one day that you can't borrow anymore. I did just what any other good alcoholic would do. I'd call my mom. Now, my mom's a nurse by profession, and she works in Manning, South Carolina, at Clarendon Memorial Hospital, and she probably makes somewhere between ten and eleven and twelve thousand dollars a year. And I'd say something like this: I'd say, "Mom, I said I'm going to be I'm going to be through Manning next week," and I said I'd like to stop and have lunch with you. And she'd say, "Oh, son, that's great." And she'd fix me this fantastic lunch like we had out at uh, like we had out at La Prague's tonight, this this restaurant, because my mother was a good cook, and we'd sit there and we'd eat. And then I'd say, "Mother, I'd say." It really is tough out there, and I'm having a lot of financial problems. I, I just can't seem to make ends meet. Do you think you can help me out this time? Mom said, how much do you need, son? And I'd say 500. And Mom would, Mom would uh, write that check. She'd go get that old tattered checkbook out of that pocketbook, and she'd write that check out, and she'd give it to me. And Mom had a little old, little old white frame house in Manning that I was always ashamed of because, you see, it, it never was good enough for me. And the reason that house never was good enough for me because, you see, I always felt that I was less than and I, I wasn't good enough. And, and I, think, I think all my life, until I got to the fellowship program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I always felt like I was a second-class citizen. And I can remember we'd stand in that doorway and I'd hug Mom. We'd stand in the doorway of that house that she was proud of and I was ashamed of and she'd give me her hard-earned money and I'd leave. And I'd go to the liquor store. And I'd take that money and I'd pay what bills I could just to stay one foot or one step ahead of the game. 
a couple months later, I'd call Mom and I'd say, Mom, I think I'm going to come through Manny next week. I'd like to stop and have lunch with you. I'd stop and have lunch, and I'd say, Mom, it sure is tough out there. You think you can help me one more time? And it might be a 1000 It might be 1200 It might be... I talked my mom out of $7,000 one time. And it was the same old scenario over and over and over. Well, I'm getting to where I'm a daily drinking. The shakes are becoming a habit. The blackouts are there. This wife that I'm living with, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to react. I got these kids, and, and I think for the first time in my life, when I finally thought that alcohol was playing a part in my life or was robbing me of something, was the day that we took my oldest daughter to college. And I can remember we drove up to Raleigh, North Carolina, and we had this U-Haul, and, and we had Susan, my oldest daughter's clothes and her, her furniture and whatever things we were going to take for her to go to college. And, and we pulled up in that apartment that she was sharing with another girl. And I went out and I was unloading the furniture and I was setting it up and I was putting the I was putting the chest of drawers in the bed and all this up and and I, and I took this picture album out and and I put it on the dresser and I looked at it and there was a picture of my daughter and her sister and there was a picture of me and her mom and there was a picture in that house that we lived in and you know if you if I'd have showed you that picture you'd have said you know God what a what a great family. See, alcohol, alcohol did a lot to me. But see, alcohol, alcohol robbed me of a lot too. It robbed me of a lot of opportunities. A lot of opportunities to, to spend time, to spend time with that daughter that I never had spent time with. And I knew, I knew that I had missed something with her. And that sad me to the point to where, you know, I just felt like I had lost something when we drove out that day and we, and we were driving home. But you see, I'm a good alcoholic, and I know what makes that pain go away. I know what that makes that pain of that loneliness go away. And I'd stop my drink. My mom died in 1981. Shortly after my mom died, I walked out of that family in North Carolina. And I'll never forget this. As long as I live, I, I was sitting in that living room that morning, and I'm drunk. And, and I announced that I'm leaving because, see, I'm blaming them now. And I'll never forget to look on my oldest daughter's face because she was in the summertime and, and she was home from school and my wife's face when I told them I was leaving because, see, I'm blaming them for all my problems. And I'll never forget that painful expression. There's tears around my daughter's eyes, down my daughter's cheek. And she said, Dad, she said, please get help. She said, please get help, Dad. She said, I don't know what's wrong with you. She says, but... Just get help. And you don't tell a daughter and you don't tell a wife that you don't fit in, that you don't belong, that you're not a part of. You just can't explain those feelings to them. But see, I knew where my answer was. It was in the front seat of that car, and that's where that bottle was. And I'd go out there and I'd pack a couple of pulls on it. And see, when I look back on my drinking career, and I heard a lot of people talk about what alcohol has done to them or done for them, alcohol did basically one thing for me. It was two worlds out there that existed all my life. One was the world of reality where there were people, places, and things. And I couldn't live in it. But when I took alcohol and I put it in this alcoholic's body, it transferred me into the world of utopia. And that's why I transferred from second class to first class. And I could live with me. And I could live with you. But more important, those feelings went away. That insecurity, that low self-esteem, that people-pleasing attitude. And I could be who I wanted to and what I wanted to. And it just got to the point when I crossed that visible line. I just didn't care anymore. I just didn't care. After I walked out of that family in Charlotte, North Carolina, I moved down to Greenville, South Carolina. I had a friend down there who'd left his wife, too. And, and he knew this lady that ran an apartment complex down there. And he said, look, Bob, he says, I... This girl I'm dating knows this this girl over here, and she's real cute, and says, I think you two might get along good together. And I said, that's fine, and he set this date up, and I went over to Woodridge Apartments about ten years ago, and I knocked on that door, and she opened the door, and there she stood, and there I stood. I knew she was beautiful, and she thought I was rich, and we just fell in sick right there. We went out that night, and we went out that night, and, and, and it was just amazing. It's just like somebody had written that script. Everything I talked about, she agreed with. Everything she talked about, I agreed with. 
You know, and it was just wonderful. And I noticed something else. As the night progressed, every time I took a drink, she'd take a drink. Based on Pure Claire, 100% alcoholic, <clears throat> thinking we moved in shortly thereafter to continue this beautiful relationship that we'd found. Now, i got to tell you, in that apartment, it was three people. It was me and Liv and this little old boy, and he's about four or five years old. His name's Rob, and Rob's there, and I don't like Rob, and the reason I don't like him because he's there. Because I don't want anybody or anything getting in the affair with my drinking. I have found out in this program that the disease of alcoholism has got certain sights and sounds to it, like furniture breaking furniture, vulgarity, flesh hitting flesh, sirens, blood, phones being jerked out of the wall. I might be running his mom and that little boy up and down an alley trying to catch him and hurt him. Thirty minutes later, I have him in a pizza hut or a McDonald's somewhere telling him how much I love him. That little boy might get up in the morning and he might walk into the living room and he may see me laying on that floor. Sometimes I'd be clothed and sometimes I wouldn't. I remember one Christmas I came in and I had blood all over my face from being in a fight. At that time in my drinking career, I'd come to about 2.30 or 3 every morning and I'd lay in that bed and I'd wait for that screaming madness to start before I had to take that vodka and I'd have to knock it back to to make that pain and settle, settle my nerves somewhat so I, could, so I could get some kind of sleep. And I could hear the little boys' blood-curdling screams coming from that room. And I'd jump up and I'd run down that room and I'd throw that door open and I'd yell at him and I'd scream at him and I'd say, shut up and go back to bed. And see, that little boy's in the nightmares that Lib was talking about, nightmares of alcoholism, and he never has had a drink before. And like Liv shared in her story last night, it just went on for a couple, three years. And I'm a round-the-clock drinker at that time, and I'm carrying all this guilt and this remorse and this anger and this frustration from how I walked out on that family in Charlotte, and I'm becoming a mean drunk, and I'm becoming a bad drunk, and I'm becoming a sick drunk. And I get to the point to where I'm drinking approximately half a gallon of vodka on a daily basis for the last year, year and a half of my active drinking before I got to you folks. But I noticed something happened about the second week in September, the first week in September 1983. I noticed that when I'm drinking, something's not working. I'm not getting out of that world of reality into that false world of utopia. It just doesn't seem to be taking effect like it used to. And I get another DUI, and and I could remember that somewhere along that time, it was it was becoming Rob's birthday, and Liv tells me, she said, if you don't straighten up, I want you out of here. And I lie one more time, and I say, hey, just give me another chance. Just give me one more chance. My little boy's birthday is on September the 12th. I came to that morning, and she said, would you please go get him a cake? I'm going to take about a half a dozen of these kids out to the skating rink tonight, and I don't want you out here, she says, but I just want you to get a cake. And I tell her, yeah, I'll get her a cake, get him a cake or whatever, and I, I get drunk and I black out. See, I can get physically drunk, but I can't get mentally drunk. And that's what happens to you when, when, when you drink this thing called alcohol and one day it quits working for you. So what I would do at that time, I could just drink and, and black out and, and, and get drunk. Now, I came to somewhere during that night and, and, and I got up and, and I saw that note where Liv told me to get out. Now, I didn't know previously that I had, I had gotten out of that bed and, 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 and followed her down to the family mart and chased her all around there, cussing her out and, and being, the, being the vulgar person that she described last night and being the mean, deceitful person that I was. When I came to that night, I, I knew that I hadn't, I hadn't done what I was supposed to, and I, I couldn't remember, and I couldn't put the pieces of that day back together. But I knew I had done something wrong, and I knew I had done something bad. And it finally dawned on me that it was this little boy's birthday. And I said, well, you know, now it's time for me to try to do something nice for him. And I said, well, it's too late for me to go get him a present. But I remembered he always liked fire trucks. And so I'm a good alcoholic and I'm a smart alcoholic, so I take a couple of drinks and I call the Greenville Fire Department. And I tell him who I am. And, and the guy wants to keeps asking me. I remember he keeps asking me. He said, well, is your house on fire? Is your apartment on fire? And I told him, no, not yet, but it probably will be when, when Miss Lib gets back. But I said, I'll tell you what I want you to do for me. I said, I want you to get the biggest fire truck you've got, and I want you to come over here, and I want you to pick me up, and I want you to take me out to the skating rink, and it's about a half a dozen kids out there, and we're going to put them on the back of this fire truck, we're going to ride them around town two or three times, 
and we're going to blow the siren. And I said, now, we're going to be real careful because we don't want to hurt them. And I says, if you will do that for me, I'm going to write you a check for $1,000 because, you see, that's going to be that birth, my birthday present, that little boy. And he listened for a few minutes. And I, I, thought, I thought he really was, was listening to that heart-rendering story. And he finally came back on the phone and told me what I could do with my $1,000, and I told him what he could do with his fire truck. Now, I don't know why that did it for me. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I got up here, and, and, and I need to clarify something. I don't bring this book up here because I'm authority on it. I bring this book up here because it's an authority on me. And this is just like my security blanket. You know, it's just like having that bottle under the front seat of the car. You know you're not going to need it, but just the thought of it being there sort of eases your mind a little bit. And that's why I bring this book up here. I don't know why that did it for me, but this book of mine, about this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that there'll come a time in every alcoholic's life where they'll have that moment of clarity. And I sat down on that couch and I said, man, you are a sick human being. See, I'm drinking around the clock and I'm not working. I never got fired from that job. And the reason I never got fired from that job is because I had a boss that didn't know what to do with me. He was a good enabler, just like my mom. Lib came home that night and I said, honey, I said, I don't know, but if you would give me one more chance, I'll promise you, I, I, I'll go somewhere and I'll get help. And she said, thank God. Now, mind you, I didn't say I wanted to quit drinking. I said I wanted some help. She said, well, why don't you call Lewis in the morning? Lewis was my boss. And she says, why don't you talk to him about what you and I have talked about and, and just maybe, maybe he can work something out. And see, I didn't know that they had already been talking, and we know who they are. They are the ones that talk about people like me long before I know they talk about people like me. I got up the next morning and poured myself a couple of drinks, and you know it's amazing how quick we remember what was a good idea the night before at 10.30. is not a real good idea at 8.30 the next morning. And I tell Lib, I said, Lib, I don't believe I want to do that. And she says, no, you got to call him. I called that man down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I tried my best for about 45 minutes to convince him that I didn't have that big of a problem. He reminded me, he said, Bob, you hadn't worked in two years, and that's my fault. The more I talked, the more he did something that nobody had ever done before me in my life. He didn't argue. He didn't say anything. And finally, he said the most important two words to me that anybody had ever said he said, Bob, I understand. Now, I don't know about you sitting in this room, but nobody ever understood me. I've been to lawyers. I, I, I mean, I've been to psychiatrists. I had been to doctors. I had been to ministers. I had been to, to people to help with this, this disease that I had that I didn't know I had. And they all read off the same sheet of music. They said to me, Bob, if you just didn't drink, you'd be okay. And I'd go out there and I'd throw a sober for four or five days and then I'm crazy. And I never could put it together. I never could I never could figure it out. I remember one time I went to a psychiatrist and paid him a hundred dollars and he told me I had low self esteem. I said, Well, what do you want me to do about it? And he says, I want you to come back next Tuesday, but in the meantime I want you to go buy yourself a, a, some clothes or, or something to make you feel better about yourself and then we'll go from there. So I did. I went out and got good and drunk and bought myself a four hundred dollar suit of clothes and wrote the man a bad check. I went to doctors, and the doctor told me one time, and I'm not, I'm, please don't think I'm knocking the medical profession. I don't know why we go, people like me go to doctors. First of all, we ain't going to tell them the truth. The first thing they're going to ask me when they look at me is how much I drink, and I'm going to lie. I think people like me need to go to veterinarians. They used to dealing with creatures that can't tell them what's wrong with them. A veterinarian could look at me and say, you're drunk. I went to a doctor one time, and he says, look, he says, uh, I can give you something to make you feel better about yourself. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's Elaville. And I said, well, how long will it take to work? And he said, about seven to ten days. And I said, doc, i got something to work seven to ten minutes. But the point I'm making is, see, nobody ever said to me, I understand. Now, my boss certainly didn't understand. He said, I'm on the way to get you, Bob. Two days later, he came up, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. I laid in that bed on September the 16th, 1983. 
I said, my God, I never planned for it to be this way. And my life just sort of flashed in front of me of all the horrible things I'd done. And you know, when I started out drinking, I, I certainly didn't think that I was going to end up with a busted family. Broke. I filed a federal bankruptcy. Had wrecked cars. Had gotten DUIs. And done all these horrible things. He came up. This lady that I was living with, they threw me in the back seat of a car on Friday morning, September 16th, and drove me to Atlanta, Georgia. Peachwood Hospital. Put me in the back seat with a half a gallon of vodka, and I hope and pray to God of my understanding that that's the last drink I take or the last drunk I've ever been on because I remember as they pulled me up or pulled up in that driveway there, and I took a big old red cup, plastic cup, and I poured it full of vodka, and I drank it, and I blacked out. I can't describe to you. I won't even attempt to describe to you because a lot of you, like you in this room, are just like me. But when they detoxed me and they started working on me, for about a week there, I, I honestly thought I was going to die. I saw the things on the wall. I saw the monkeys. I, I saw the spiders. I saw the snakes. And I was telling somebody today I was always falling off that cliff. And, and it was like something would go off in my head every so often. And I can remember, it took me about four, five, six days before I could even get out of that bed, before I could even shuffle on down to get some orange juice or whatever. I hope and pray I never have to, I hope and pray I never have to get sober again. After they got me out of detox, they slid me over there where y'all were. All those patients were over there. It's about 75 or 80 of them. Old boy walked up to me and he said, Bob, how you doing? And I, I didn't recognize him. I said, well, I'm doing all right. And he said, man, he said, I was over in detox with you. And he said, I swear I ain't never seen anybody sick as you are. He said, but I've been over here a couple of times, a couple of days now. And he said, you know, Bob, it's not so bad being an alcoholic. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they, they've convinced me I'm an alcoholic. Now, if you never have been to treatment before and you're not an alcoholic, I can tell you one thing. When you go to treatment, when you come out, they'll convince you you're an alcoholic. Because I wasn't an alcoholic when I went there. And I, I told him, I said, I really don't appreciate you telling me that. <laughs> I laid around that hospital over there for about two weeks, and I made fun of everybody in there because, see, I got this other disease that goes along with mine. It's called denial. One night, my roommate, old Warren, he said, Bob, he said, we got to get up in early in the morning. He said, we got to go down to room so-and-so. He said, they're going to talk to us about the disease of alcoholism. I got up that next morning and I sort of shuffled on down to that room. So I did a lot of shuffling back then. I walked in that room and I slid over in the corner and I sort of hunched up against the wall and put on that mask, that mask of hate and that mask of anger and that mask of frustration. And it was probably 75, 80 patients in there. And about that time, a little old red-headed doctor, he walked to the front of the room and he knocked on the podium like this and he said, my name's Dr. Bill C. And he says, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. He said, I have been sober in the fellowship and program of alcoholics Anonymous for 18 months. He says, I now work in this treatment center and they pay me money, your money. And he says, one of my duties in here is to talk to you and explain to you the disease of alcoholism. And he says, if you want to listen, that's fine. And if you don't, I really don't give a damn. And when he said that, he looked at me and I looked at him and I knew he was my kind of man. He said, did you know alcoholism was a disease? He said, before we get started here, I want to pass out these questions to you and I want you to answer them yes, no. Try to get as honest as you can. And he passed out this, this John Hopkins quiz and they'd added some questions to it about the disease of alcoholism. And, and when I got mine, I started hunched on over there and, and I had a pencil and I'm circling those and I don't want anybody to see what I'm, what I'm circling them, but I'm saying yes, 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 yes. We got through and he says, now ladies and gentlemen, he says, we're not going to ask everybody their score. He said, but if you've answered just two of those questions, there's about 40 or 50 on there, if you've answered just two of those questions, he said, you're probably an alcoholic. But if you've answered yes to three or more of them, you're definitely an alcoholic. And guess what? You're going to die an alcoholic whether you like it or not. Now, I looked down there and I'd answered yes to all but one of them. And I come to find out later I'd lied about that one. <laughs> that question read something like this, and maybe you male alcoholics, if you can get honest, can identify with this. 
It says, has alcohol ever been a deterrent in your sex life? See, that's somebody's already had that. I said, why, hell no. I was telling Liv about how I'd answer that question when we got out of treatment, and she'd laugh for about three days. That doctor stood up there for about the next hour and he explained this horrible disease that I suffer from. He said, did you know that alcoholics have a certain chemical imbalance in their bodies that we put alcohol in here, we don't disperse or dispense it like normal people? That it forms with this other chemical called acetic acid and it builds up with this thing in the brain called THIQ and we reach a point to where we cannot drink and can control our drinking because we pass this thing called invisible line. And he says, you know, the son of, the problem with the alcoholic is we got certain character defects like low self-esteem, people-pleasing attitudes, we're alive, we cheat, we steal, we'll go, and on and on and on. And he says the biggest problem the alcoholic's got, he's got something to deal that lies between his ears. And he says, you call it what you want to call it, but I call it a crippled instrument because it will help you justify your behavior and your past behavior. Never will you blame yourself for any of your actions. And he says, why are you in this treatment center, ladies and gentlemen? He says, you need to make a decision. He says, you need to make a decision before you leave this treatment center if you think you're an alcoholic on how you're going to die. Two of them's going to be bad and one of them can be good. You're going to die in an institution, you're going to die before your time, or you're going to die sober. And if you choose to die sober, I'm going to strongly recommend that you go to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And when he said that, I wanted to throw up. I done been to one of them A&A meetings up in Charlotte about a year before that. lady up there had the audacity one Saturday to suggest to me, and I don't know why she did. She said, Bob, she said, I want you to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with me. And I got a lot of pride and I got a lot of ego, and I knew I didn't need it, but I went anyway just to be... <clears throat> well, she was a good friend. Her company boss was... I mean, her husband was at the company, and I just wanted to show them that I didn't have that big of a problem. Now, I'm going to tell you what I, what I saw at my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We walked riding over there that night, and I said to Nancy, I said, Do you think, do you think that I'm going to know anybody over there? She said, No, nah, honey. She says, You probably won't know anybody over there. She says, But everybody in that room is going to know you. And I thought she was paying me a compliment because, see, I had been a man around town there in Charlotte, and I just swelled up with pride. We walked into Randolph Clinic one Saturday, that Saturday night, and I don't know whether it was 20 people there, 50 people there, or 200 people. We walked in a room, and every one of them was making a mad dash to a big old silver pot over there in the corner. And they was knocking each other down, and they was pouring something brown in it, and they'd throw a swallow down, and they'd slop all over each other. And all of a sudden, the women hugged the women, the men hugged the men, and they started hugging each other and carrying on. And about that time, a man come running up to him, and he said, Welcome, friend. I love you. <laughs> now, when you men in South Carolina, where I come from, and another man tells you he loves you, I mean, you just sort of keep your eye on him. She said, Shut up. She said, That's just the way they express their feelings for one another in here. I said, sit down. So they're getting ready to start the meeting. Some old gal got up there and read something called how it worked, and I thought that was mighty stupid. Because, see, I knew how it worked. You're doing to others as you have them doing to you, but you do it first, was my motto. And then he got up there, and this guy says, now, we got a speaker here tonight, and says, now, I don't know old Joe, but Joe's going to get up here and share with you. Now, he might have not have known old Joe, but when Joe got up there and says, my name's Joe, I'm an alcoholic, 200 people in the unit, and says, hello, Joe. I said, my God, that man told the God off this horrible story I have ever heard in my life. Running around on his wife, writing bad checks, going from job to job, doing this, doing that, getting locked up, wrecking cars, etc., 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 etc. And I'm sitting there laughing at him and making fun, and old Joe's telling Bob's story. And he sat down, and somebody got up, and they, they gave out something called chips. Silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. They'd come running up there, and everybody just squeal and yell and carry on when they'd pick up one. I said, man, these are a bunch of dodos. That meeting got over, and Nancy, she said, that couple, I want to talk to you over there in the corner. I walked over there in the corner, and a man looked at me, and he said, sir, he said, do you have a big book? And I said, no, I don't believe I do. He says, well, this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we'd like to have $5 for it. But if you don't have it, we'll work it out. I looked at it, and I said, well, I don't believe I care for it. Now, you got to understand. The books that I'm buying at that time, I'm picking up here at Starving Marvin's for $2.50, and they got pictures of naked women and filthy jokes in it, and this ain't got neither one of them, and I'm, I ain't interested. 
The guy told me he loved me. He said, what you need to do is, he said, you need to get a sponsor. And I said, what's a sponsor? And they said, that's an old-timer. Somebody in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to sort of help you with the steps and sort of be your, your guide through the steps and through life. And I looked at him and I said, I don't believe I need no old fool telling me what to do. He looked back and he said, we are found in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't get to be old being a fool. He said, what you need to do, Bob, is go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I said, 90 meetings in 90 days, why? He said, to start you on that 180-degree turnaround. I said, how long these meetings last? He said, two hours a day. He said, 30 minutes to get there, an hour for the meeting, 30 minutes for the fellowship. He said, two hours a day out of your busy schedule. I said, I ain't got two hours a day. I believe I'm safe in saying this if you're an alcoholic sitting in this room. For the ones of you that didn't drink but two hours a day, remain seated. The rest of us leave. We could clear this room out in about five minutes. Telltale Lines used to have a slogan. You used to call down Telltale Lines and you'd say, hey, is this Telltale Lines? She'd say, yes, it is. We're ready when you are. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. We're ready when you are. And I wasn't ready. And I went out there, ladies and gentlemen, I got ready. And somehow I knew that doctor was going to talk about something I didn't want him to talk about. And you all know what that is, and that's God. You see, I, I, I was raised in the church. I was raised in the Manning Methodist Church. And think I, in fact, I got saved in the First Baptist Church in Manning when I was about 14, and I think that lasted about three days. But I knew about God, and I knew that man was going to talk about God. And, and he said something to this effect. He says, look, he says, why are you patients in this hospital? He says... We talk about a higher power in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, I choose to call mine God. He said, why are you in this treatment center? He says, why don't you just ask this God or this higher power that you don't even know unconditionally just to help you? And he talked a few minutes more and he talked maybe another 30 minutes more. And I'm sitting there and I'm getting nervous. And so I sort of just slid on back to my room when that session was over. No warning, and my roommate had already gone to lunch. I sat on that bed, and, and I became very weak. And I think that's the first time in my life that I surrendered just a little bit. Because, you see, I'm an alcoholic, and I can't surrender totally. Because I don't know that this is the thing that I want yet. And I, I uttered that prayer probably that most of us in this room have uttered when we said something like, God, please help me. I went to group therapy that afternoon in that treatment center. And we were supposed to tell a little bit how we got to that hospital, and I always gave him some smart-out remark, like the back seat of a car. And old Seal, the counselor, when it came around to me, it was about 25 or 30 patients in that room, and old Seal came around to me. She said, Bob, would you like to share this morning? I sat there for a few minutes, and I said, yeah, I would. I said, my name's Bob McKinnon, I'm an alcoholic, and I started crying. And I sat there for about the next 30 or 45 minutes, and I poured my heart, my soul, and I told about some of the horrible things that I'd done as a result of the disease of alcoholism, like the day I walked out on my family on Christmas Eve and stayed drunk. Like I used to have a buddy who would give me hot jewelry, and I'd go fence it for him so I could, so I could support all those women out there and support that gambling out there and support that disease out there. I told about the time that my mother lay dying in Manning, South Carolina, in that hospital that she loved so much. She died of another incurable disease, and it's called cancer. And that day that she died, she looked at me, and she, she said, Son, please don't leave, because I know it's near, and I don't want to be here alone. I'm a good alcoholic, and I looked at my mom and said, Don't worry, I'll be here. My mom died that night, and I wasn't there. Because, you see, I needed a drink. I needed to get drunk. You can't judge me on my intentions. You've got to judge me on my actions. I sat there and I talked and I talked. And, you know, it was like somebody was standing behind me. And every time I'd say something, it was like somebody lifting a thousand pounds off my back. And when that session was over, Seal, she came up to me and she puts her arms around me. And she says, honey, she said, you can get sober now. I said, why is that, Seal? She says, because you begin to get honest. She said, if you'll get honest and you'll keep them H's in your eyeballs the rest of your life, she said, there is a world out there that you've never lived in, and that's the world of sobriety. She said, and if you'll become involved and active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, they said, they will give you a chance at a second life, not a second chance, 
about a chance at a second life. She said, I want you to go down to room so-and-so in the morning. She said, that's where we have early morning meditation. I got up that next morning and I, and I sort of just walked on down there. See, I've been shuffling and I sort of just walked on down there that morning and it was about a half a dozen people sitting in that room. And one of them was named Oscar. And Oscar's an old black man and he's not educated. And he rooms next to me in that treatment center. And we get through doing what we do in that morning meditation session. And they said, anybody here like to lead us in prayer? And oh God, oh Oscar raised his hand. He said, I'd like to try. I'll tell you what Oscar said. Oscar said, dear God, I'd like to thank you for leading me to this treatment center where I woke up this morning with the smell of hot food in the bed under my body. I'd like to thank you, dear God, for, for this thing, this treatment place where they can help me with this alcoholism and, and, and start me on the right way, the right path, the recovery. And I'd like to thank you for that wife and those kids and the mountains and the sea and the seasons of the year. And I'd like to thank you for this and thank you for that and thank you for this. And I'm sitting there thinking, why is he thinking he's supposed to be praying? And then it dawned on me. Here I am, 44 years of age, sitting in a treatment center in Atlanta, Georgia. Because, you see, I never had been able to appreciate what God put on this earth free of charge. People, places, and things. I hugged old Oscar that morning. I got out of that treatment center two weeks and I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, they said something in this treatment center, and they didn't say it this way, and I want to make this perfectly clear, but see, I'm an alcoholic, and I heard what I wanted to hear. They said, did you know most alcoholics are above average intelligence? And they didn't say it that way. They just said that alcoholics were pretty smart people, and that's how we're able to lie, cheat, and steal for so many years before we get here. Now, when I got to that treatment center, for the first time in my life, I realized that I had fear. Because, see, the only thing that ever worked for me was alcohol, and it quit working. Now, I'm full of fear, see. And alcohol never had been a problem for me. It didn't matter what had happened in my life, whether I wrecked cars, uh, whether I stole money, whether I, whatever I did, it didn't matter. See, alcohol was always the answer. Alcohol became a problem for me today, it quit working. So I leave this treatment center, and I'm coming to AA. And I heard what I wanted to hear, and they told me that I was above average intelligence, and if I would pay attention while I was in that treatment center, I was going to learn a lot, and when I got to AA, I could share all this knowledge with them. Now, they didn't say that, but that's what I heard, and what I wanted to hear was that when I got to you folks, I could help you all with y'all's problem. I went to 9,328 meetings that first year running for Rookie of the Year. Come to find out that it didn't even elect one. I picked up my 30-day chip, my six-month chip, my nine-month chip, my year chip. Stood up in front of my home group after I celebrated one year in a wonderful fellowship. Broke by college and arms, cried like a baby and thanked everybody for helping me. Helping me so much in the first year and how much I had grown and how much I loved the fellowship and the program. Broke college and arms. And the God of my understanding and keep coming back. It works. Two months later, I'm sitting outside of a meeting. Somewhere along the line, I ran into old Sterling, and he gave me a book, and he said, you need to read this, boy. A book called ODAP. <clears throat> Our Devilish Alcoholic Personality. It's about this little old monkey. You take the first letters of each one of those words, and you, you nickname the monkey ODAP, and ODAP will follow you around everywhere you go. And he'll say, Bob, you might not be an alcoholic. You don't need this meeting tonight. I'm sitting outside of a meeting one night, 14 months of sobriety. Me and Pride and Ego sitting in the front seat along with ODAP. I'm taking a few inventories of people coming in. Pride tells Ego to tell ODAP, let's crank the car up, go have a drink. We don't need what these folks got. Truth of the matter is, I don't have nothing. Program of Alcoholics Anonymous in action. God does be what I can't do for myself. Old boy knocked on the window and he said, Bob, how you doing? I said, man, I'm doing fine. He said, you mind if I sit down a minute? I said, nah. He said, Bob, he said, you just celebrated a birthday, didn't you? I said, yep, got 14 months in the fellowship, broke by Cox and Thompson. He looked at me and he said, that's wonderful. He said, have you noticed that the chips have run out? I said, what? He said, they don't give you a chip for 14 months. He said, they'll give you one for 30 days, 90 days, 6 months, 9 months, a year. He said, if you hang around here another 10, 12 months, he said, they'll give you another blue chip. I said, what are you talking about, Jason? 
He said, Bob, I've been in a lot of meetings with you. And he says, you know, he said, there's a lot of talkers and a lot of walkers in this program. And he said, the talkers and the walkers make it. He said, you do a lot of talking. He said, I'm going to suggest something to you. He said, I'm going to suggest that you read chapter 5 in the big book. I don't know why. I said, my Lord. That was one of the things that I was going to change when I got to y'all. I didn't know why, why, why we had to read how it worked at every meeting. Once a week, sure, surely enough, once a week was enough. I went home that night and I found the big book and I wiped the dust off of it and I told Lib, you know, on bed, I wanted to do a little reading, and that shocked the hell out of her right then that I wanted to read something. I opened it to chapter 5 of the big book, and I'm going to tell you what it said to me that night. It says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. It didn't, think, it didn't say anything there about me becoming a leader. It didn't say anything about me becoming a rationalizer. It says, followed our path. You know, I went for the first time in my life and I read that page in that quarter before it gets to the steps. And you know, certain things in there that I got to hear to before I get to the steps. Like I got to get honest. Like I got to understand that half measures are going to veil me nothing. And then when I can understand those two things, then I stand at the turning point and then I got to make the decision. And if I make the right decision, I ask God to protect me, complete abandon. And then and then only can I realize that I am a powerless human being. And I got to those steps. And I got Sterling as a sponsor. And I started listening at meetings. And, and I can remember that first, that second step to me was all you pilks in there, the, the, the people that had been sober for, for, for many, many years. And I asked old Squire one night, I said, Squire, I said, how long have you been sober? And he said, oh, I don't know, 28, 29, 30 years. Why? I said, how in the hell did you stay sober that long, Squire? He looked at me and he said, you don't drink, fool. <laughs> You just don't drink one day at a time. And he says, you will be amazed how long you can stay sober. I started listening in those meetings. And, you know, and I'd sit around those meetings and I'd hear things like, let go and let God. Bob, you got to write. you got to go talk to your sponsor. you got to take that fourth and fifth step. you got to take that sixth and seventh. And what I really did when I got into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, see, I quit working the program. What I did, what I did was started following the instructions. And see, when I follow the instructions, I don't have to work the program because the, the program works for me. And I got to those amend steps. And I had to go back to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had to make amends to that lady that had given me 20 years and two weeks of her life. And she forgave me, or she said she did. And I can remember when I made those amends, I came back to Greenville and I was talking to old Jake and Jake was not with us anymore, but I can remember I was at the club one day and I told him, I said, I said, Jake, I said, I made amends to my ex-wife. I said, but I don't feel real good about it. I said, it just feels like to me she let me off too light. And he said, Bob, did she forgive you? And I said, yeah. And he said, did God forgive you? And I said, yeah. He said, and you got to forgive yourself. You know, it was a long time before I could forgive myself for the way I treated that family. I had to get on my knees in Johnson City, Tennessee one night. And I had to write, after I had written a 12-page letter. And I said, God, give me the direction on what I'm supposed to do. Because I said, i got this thing inside of me that says I hadn't done it. I hadn't done it totally yet. And I wrote that letter and I put it on that desk and I got on my knees. And the next morning I got up and I walked over and I tore it up and I threw it in the trash can and I have not looked back since. See, see, when I pray to God, when I talk to God, I, I, I say, God, you got to give me the direction. I, I, I say, God, I don't pray to God to keep me sober because, see, if I pray to God just to keep me sober, I probably won't stay sober. i got to pray to God to give me the willingness to do what I need to do to stay sober. And that's to practice these principles in all my affairs. When my mom died, when my mom died, and she died before she saw her son get sober, I didn't even shed a tear at her funeral. I knew I had to make things right with her. And I got in that car about two and a half years in this fellowship, and I drove to Manning, South Carolina, and I drove up on that graveyard where my mom's buried. And I walked up to my mom's grave, and I didn't know what to say. 
But somewhere in this book it says we'll intuitively know how to handle situations. And I just told my mom what I'd been like, what had happened, and the way it is today. And I'm not so sure that I didn't feel God put His arm around me that morning and say, You okay, son? And it's all right. And I know it's okay today. What's my life like today? Old boy back home says it better than anybody ever heard. He said, My life's fantastic today, but nothing great ever happens. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's what old Oscar was talking about, just the simple things in life. You know, I, this may sound crazy, but I was sharing something the other day. Somebody, I get excited about going to bed at night and going to sleep. You see, I'm an alcoholic. I take what I've gotten here for granted at times. I was two, two years in this program somewhere along the line, and, and I can remember my furnace went out about two weeks before Christmas, and it was going to take a lot of money to get it fixed. And I'm mad, and I'm mad at God because He's not doing right, and He don't let no furnaces don't go bad two weeks before Christmas. And I called old Larry, my buddy, and I'm beating him to death with this problem I got. You know, my furnace is out, Larry, and I don't have the money to fix it, blah, 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 blah. Larry's a dear friend of ours, and he came in this program alone when he did, and he talks to me about any way he wants to, and he said, if you'll just shut up a minute, I'd like to explain something to you. He said, do you know why you need a furnace bar? And I said, why? He said, because you own a home. He said, the reason you own a home is because you've got a job. And he says, the reason you've got a job is because you've got a family, and the reason you've got a family is because you've got Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, what the hell is your problem? I do have a family today. I got two families today. I got families in Alcoholics Anonymous. Greatest people on the face of this earth. And I got another family I got to share with you for a few minutes and then I'm going to get off of here. I ruined one family. Because you see, I never knew how to be a father. I never knew how to be a husband. I never knew how to be a good citizen. I never knew how to be a good employee because see, I was always going to change tomorrow. Because of loving God and people like you, I hope old Bob has changed. As a result of that, I do have a family. I've got a daughter that lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, and that was that daughter I took up to school many, many years ago, and she's 29 years old. She suffered a lot from the disease of alcoholism, and she doesn't even drink because we still got that wall up between us. And She's nice. She tries to be nice, but I know it's there. But it's beginning to crumble just a little. I've always been the one to have to initiate the phone calls to her and say, will you come for this weekend? you come for this weekend? And she would say, yeah, no, whatever. This past Tuesday night, the phone rang in our house, and it was my daughter in Raleigh, and she said, Dad, she said, Andy and I just bought a house, and she said, we want you and Liv and Rob and Kelly to come up and spend the weekend. She said, we would love that. And that might not mean a lot, but that meant everything to me because, see, she initiated that call. Slowly but surely, one day at a time, I think that relationship will be mended and healed. i got to tell you what I think of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. A little three years ago, I had a daughter at the University of South Carolina who's a lot like a dad and got in a lot of trouble because of alcohol. Liv and I went down there and I sat in that room that day and I said, Kelly, I'm going to introduce you to a group of people and hope and pray to God that you can identify with them. And I brought my youngest daughter to you folks a little over three years ago and I said, please do for my daughter what I can't because you see I'm her dad and I'll try to fix her. And she's been coming back ever since. Thank you. She did have a little interruption about six months ago, and she came by the house, and she said, Dad, she said, I need to talk to you. And we sat in that den, and she said, Dad, I got drunk when I went out of town. And she said, I know I let you down. And she said, I'm so sorry. And I looked at her, and I said, Honey, I said, I'm your dad. I'm going to love you drunk or sober. And she said, Well, I'm going to my home group tomorrow night, and I'm going to pick up a white chip because I need to. And I looked at her and I said, Honey, you need to think about that. And she said, Why is that, Dad? 
I said because Alcoholics Anonymous is not a program for the ones that need it. It's for the ones that want it. And you need to think about that before you pick it up. She went and picked it up the next night, and I think I think she's just doing fantastic ever since. And that family I got now, we got a little boy. Liv talked about him last night. I used to despise that child. A week before Liv and I got married, I, I sat, we sat in the bedroom one night, and I said, Liv, I don't think this marriage is going to work. She said, why? I said, because of him. Because of him. And she said, we'll package deal, Bob. Both of us are none. I've been sober a little over eight years. Since September 17, 1983. I need to mention that. That little old boy is probably the pride and joy of my life today because, see, he's a lot like me and his mom. And he has his ups and downs, and he's all boy, and, and he does the things that I guess little boys do. And I have to remind myself of what I was doing at age 14. He had a rough week this week, and he didn't make the basketball team. He didn't make, didn't get on the church team, and, and dropped out of driver's education. And we called him the other night, and I was talking to him, and. And I was trying to build him up, and I was trying to say something. I was trying to say something to him that would make him feel better. And he said, Bob, he said, you know, when I got cut off that basketball team, he said, I swear I could have sat down and cried. And I told him, I said, Rob, it's okay to cry. It's okay. And he said, but you know, maybe it was God's will that he doesn't want me to play basketball. Maybe it's God's will that he wants me to play tennis because Mom took me up to the tennis coach. She wants me to take tennis two nights a week. And I could see his little self-esteem coming up a little bit, you know, and I wanted to say something just to pump him up a little more. And I said, you know, Rob, maybe that's right. And I said, you know, maybe it is God's will that he wants you to excel in tennis. And I said, you know, it's probably God's will that he wants you to have a new pair of shoes to play tennis in. He said, really? He said, what kind? I said, any damn kind you want, boy. And I could see that smile come all the way across that telephone. And let me tell you why that's so important to me. Because you taught me how to love. See, I never knew how to love before I got here. I'm not so sure that I love my this beautiful lady up here when we got married. I didn't know how to be a husband. I didn't know how to be a father. I went to Sterling two years ago, and I said, Sterling, it's not working. He said, Bob, when have, y'all, have you started doing your meditation together? I said, well, I can't do that. He said, sure you can. And we started that journey together, doing our meditation together, and that's what we do every morning. Hold hands, and we read out of the Alateen book, because you see, I'm still a little boy. And we pray together that third step prayer. And Lib's got her program, and I got my program, and we got a program together, and she's my best friend as a result of it. And that's what keeps us together. And we are happy. I got to close. I, I got to thank you for, for allowing us to come up here and share. I missed my home group last night, and that was to keep it simple group. And, and I don't know whether they've missed me, but I, I sure hope somebody asked about me because that's so important to me. All my life, I was a second-class citizen, and I didn't belong, and I wasn't a part of. Every year, I go through Manning, South Carolina, about twice a year, and I take flowers and I put it on my mom's grave, and 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 I talk to mom, and we laugh, and you know. And bring up speed on what's going on. My mom's got a great sense of humor. I was telling her one time I'd been sober for three months, and she reminded me she'd been sober for 65 years. You know. <laughs> but I put those flowers on my mom's grave, and I ride back through town, and I, I pull up from that little old house that she was so proud of and I was so ashamed of. And I sit there and I smile. Because, you know, I know that she knows that I'm not second class anymore. God knows I'm not second class anymore. Because you see, because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous.
and the God of my understanding. I'm first class today. You have given me the greatest, greatest gift that an alcoholic can ever have. Self-respect, dignity, and sobriety. And I love you for it. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.